if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. To Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be the third message in our series on Genesis, where we're tracing the beginnings of everything that we know and take for granted. About a hundred years ago, most of the elites in the world, the cultural elite, the philosophers, the academics, the playwrights, the novelists, most of the ones who are generally recognized as the world's intellectual leaders believed that human history had been working in a constant direction, a constant upward move towards a time when all things would be perfect, where the effects of poverty or the effects of, uh, of war, conflict, would be erased from the world. That's, what they, that's how they saw history. Then World War I happened. Then a worldwide depression happened. Then World War II happened. And with World War II, a big, fat nail in the coffin of this optimistic take on where history is headed. It was a time of deep disillusionment for those intellectuals. I recently came across the writings of this woman named Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, also a, a fiction writer and, and wrote on different aspects of, of Christian thinking. Dorothy Sayers was in England during the war, a war that's very different from anything we could experience. You know, we can turn off the TV and, and forget that we're at war right now, but for those living especially in Europe during World War II, they were getting bombs dropped on them, and Sayers lived through it. And she lived through it, living among the community of elites that had been teaching for decades that the world was on an upward trajectory and wasn't going to stop. What she noticed, living in that community, as they experienced the, the fallout from World War II, is that they couldn't handle it. Their ideas about the world couldn't survive that kind of trauma. This is what she said. Responding to the genocide that happened in that, in that uh, war and the, the great sacrifice of lives, especially of innocence. She said to, to those elite that she lived and worked among, it wasn't just shocking and alarming. She said, for them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they believed. It's as though, this is, this is how she described it, it is as though the bottom had dropped out of their universe. They couldn't accommodate a world in which things could go that wrong. I don't think we have to look at these big social movements, things like war, to recognize, though, that something is deeply wrong with the world that we live in. I mean, we recognize it in other people, right? In the way that, that they interact with us, we are we're sharp to recognize selfishness, to recognize bitterness and envy, and I think we see it in others and are hurt by it in others only because we see it too deeper. If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we see it in ourselves question is, where does it come from? I don't think any reasonable person can deny that this world isn't what it should be. But where did this, this deeply flawed sense of things come from? Genesis, as we've already seen the past couple of weeks, is trying to explain the beginnings of the things that we take for granted. Not just telling a bunch of ancient stories that are sort of curiosities or, or something like C.S. Lewis might have written in, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books. They're not just telling stories for stories' sake. They're telling ancient stories that they think stay relevant because they explain what we all experience as we live our lives in this world. That's what Genesis is trying to do. 
And in Genesis chapter 3, which is where we come today, we have an explanation of where sin comes from, of why the world that we live in now isn't what it ought to be. Now, let's just be honest and upfront. The story that Genesis 3 tells is not an easy one to swallow. It's got things like talking snakes, magical trees, flaming swords, lots of stuff that you might expect to read in a good fantasy novel, but you wouldn't necessarily expect to have ever actually happened. But Dorothy Sayers, in another important book, she says that, honestly, what matters most when encountering stories like this one or accounts of of how the world came to be what it is, what matters most is not whether or not those stories are pleasant, but whether or not they're true. I think any modern person who comes to a story like we're going to come to in Genesis 3 is going to have that fingernails on a chalkboard sensibility about them when they read it. But what I'm going to ask you to do as we get into this story is not to, not to let that distract you, the, the weirdness, the strangeness of it, but to think about whether or not it's true in our experience. The reason the writer of Genesis recorded this story is not for curiosity's sake, but because he believed that this explains something that all of us experience. What we're going to do is read through this story together and then step back and try to mine out of it things that explain to us what sin is like, the nature of sin, what sin has caused or how it shows itself in our experience, the results of sin. And then at the end, we want to point forward, especially to Easter week, we're preparing to celebrate for the promised solution to sin. That's where we're headed today. Let's start by reading the story of Genesis 3 together. Would you mind, if you found that in your Bible, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's Word as we read? This is the Word of the Lord. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evils. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to look first at the nature of sin. What's it like? What can we learn about it from this story? This story comes on the heels of the account of God making everything that is. He speaks it into existence in Genesis chapter 1 and forms it carefully and beautifully in Genesis chapter 2. And at the conclusion of his work, after he's made this one creature with a dignity and a, a uniqueness that sets it apart from all other things in God's creation, after he's made humankind in his image, he gives Adam one simple command. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. He'd given him everything he needed to survive. He provided everything for him. A place of perfect harmony and peace where he would never have any kind of need. He only gave him this one simple restriction. And I don't think we should fixate on the nature of what he told him to do so much as we should recognize God has given him a command. God's word till now has always been obeyed. When he speaks, things happen. And he's reminded through this command, he's reminded the man that he exists not on his own, but as one created and therefore accountable to the one who made everything. That's the backstory. Now enter the serpent. The first verse of chapter 3 gives us a new character in the story, and it doesn't start out well. It's a serpent who, we're told, is crafty. Before we get into the details of this story, I think what we're going to see is that God here has established himself as an authority over these humans that he's made. And he's called on them to rule over the world in his image and on his behalf and not in his place. But the nature of sin is us replacing that authority with our own. When we sin, we put ourselves where only God belongs. Let's look, let's look at how this happens in the story of, of Eve's in exchange with the serpent and see if it doesn't sound just a little bit familiar about the way that we work ourselves into disobedience. Starts with the serpent challenging Eve. And even more than challenging Eve, what he's doing is challenging God's word. He comes at her asking, did God actually say? Is that really what he said? And then misquotes him, 
right after that. He says, did he really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? It's like a little kid trying to get outside the commands that his parents have given him by coming up with some sort of creative interpretation or just shifting just one word to throw a little bit of doubt on it. His words do, do their work. There's shadows that have been thrown on the same authoritative word that until now had called things into existence absolutely and without challenge. The answer is that no, God didn't say what the serpent suggested he said. He said one specific tree you're not supposed to eat from, but not all of them. But the seed of doubt is there, and Eve builds on it. Her response corrects the serpent to an extent. She says, no, there was just the one tree that we're not supposed to eat from. But she adds to God's words. She says, God also said we're not supposed to touch it. He didn't say that. And she takes away from his words. She says, he told us not to touch it lest we die. We create the possibility of death. And what he would actually said is that if you touch it, if you, actually, if you eat from it, you will surely die. You can see how the progress is, is taking shape. It starts with a question about what God has actually said, calling into question his authority, challenging him. It builds on itself and expands in Eve's response. to. By the time you get to verse 4, the serpent is denying what God had said outright. He is saying it's just not true. You will surely not die, the serpent tells the woman. Notice what has to happen. If you're going to challenge the word that God has issued to the man, you got to, it goes hand in hand with challenging his character. The serpent doesn't stop by saying that God isn't going to make good on what he said. The serpent challenges God's intention behind his command. He tries to put into the mind of this woman that God did not mean it for her good. He challenges God's authority by claiming God knows the reason he told you not to do this is not that you're going to die, but because he doesn't want you to have something that you will enjoy. Verse 5 goes there. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. It's going to be for your good if you eat it, and God doesn't want that for you. So now it's gone from just doubting whether or not he'd make good on his promise to doubting the character from which this command comes. He promises you're going to be like God if you eat this. Here's the thing. Our submission to God's authority always means more than recognizing that he has the right to our obedience. That's true, but that's not all of it. It's not just that God has the right to command like some sort of parent over a two-year-old. It's that it's our submission, the kind that he's looking for. It also means trusting that his commands come from him knowing what's best for us that they're motivated by his desire for what's best for us, and that they're backed up by his power to secure what's best for us if we just trust him and obey. Sin isn't, therefore, it's it's not just a flagrant rebellion in in the same sense that a strong-willed two-year-old pushes back against the authority of a parent. It's deeper than that and more sinister than that. It's denying that God is good, that he's loving, that he has power. It is refusing, in other words, to rest in submission to God. Now, note finally about this exchange with with Eve and the serpent, what gets put in its place. If you take God out of this place as an authority who secures what's best for you and you just rest and trust in him, if if you take him out of that place, the only thing you've got left to put back in it is what seems best to you. That's where Eve goes. Verse 6, having just had seeds of doubt about God's goodness and love and power in her mind, she turns to her own senses to know what's best. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It looks good. It looks useful. It's practical. She sees that it's a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. It's attractive. She sees that 
It's to be desired if you want to be wise. It seems like it's going to advance her status, make her something that she wasn't. So falling back on her own sense of what's best for her, based on what her own senses and desires tell her, she disobeys the command of God. Ironically, she wants wisdom. And later authors, including the psalmist in Psalm 111, tell us that real wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And Eve sought it by abandoning that very fear. Sin, in essence, if we take a step back, we look at this account of how wrong enters the world. What we see, I think, is that sin, in essence, is putting something else at the center of our lives, something in place of God. It's to say that God isn't trustworthy. He can't bear that kind of weight. And so, in its place, we're going to have to put ourselves or something else that we value highly. In the words of the serpent, we seek to become like God. We're not content to just be in his image to rule on his behalf, as we were commissioned to do in the first chapter of Genesis. We want to be in his place. I think that's why the Ten Commandments, one of the most famous collections of God's will for his people, I think that's why the Ten Commandments start with the command to put no other God before the one true God. Ultimately, if you break anything else in the list of commandments after that one, you have to first break that one. If you lie, you've got to first Doubt that God is, knows what's best for you when he tells you to tell the truth. You've got to assume that your reputation is worth protecting, even if that means disobeying God, and therefore your reputation is more significant to you than God himself. You've got to, you've got to assume that maybe you've got to protect yourself by hiding the truth, and that therefore God can't protect you if you were to tell the truth as he's commanded you to do. What happens when you lie is you've first broken the first commandment to have no other God before him. I think that this story points us in that direction. Eve sins, and in that sin, the nature of it is to switch places with the only one who has an authority and a power to give us security in life. That's what sin is. So, what happens? Once sin enters the world, what what are the results? The rest of this passage, starting in verse 8 on, are God interacting with these sinners and telling them what's going to happen because of what they did. Really, some of the most important details in here, some of the biggest details in here, are God saying that the very things he'd given them responsibility to do are now going to be a lot harder for you to do. God had said, you're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you're going to have dominion over all the earth. And now he tells the woman that she's going to have pain in childbirth, and he tells the man that when he tries to rule that earth, when he tries to work it to supply bread, it's going to be a lot harder. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be all of these weeds that are going to choke it out, and it's going to be tough. I want to, though, setting aside that big picture view of the results of sin, I want to dig deeper on the interpersonal results of sin because they run like a thread all through this account too. Ultimately, when we replace God at the center of our lives with us, it puts us in a position of authority and responsibility that we can't fully bear. And what that looks like in practice is that we turn on each other. I think we see three general results of sin in this passage. That, that sin destroys relationships, that it separates us from God, and ultimately it brings death. So first, sin destroys human relationships. I think we see this starting to happen immediately after their sin. They attempt to replace God with their own ability to see what's best and to call the shots for themselves, and immediately they realize that they can't bear that weight. 
immediately what they realize is a deep sense of inadequacy that they don't measure up. I think that's the deeper meaning of them coming to recognize their nakedness. It's not just a body image thing, though, though clearly this text shows that that wasn't, body image issues weren't created by the age of the Internet or magazine covers. They, they go deep. But it's not just a body image thing. This is a surface revelation, I think, of a deeper sense of shame and guilt and insecurity. So they sew things together to try to cover themselves. And it only goes downhill from there. When you set aside rest in God, when you refuse to trust in him as your authority and your provider, what you're left with is yourself and with the strong desire to fight for what's yours, come what may. And this is a tendency that shows itself immediately when God begins to talk with Adam and Eve after their sin. He comes to them in the garden. Get the sense that this had been happening regularly, that they communed with him like this. And he's looking for them, and he can't see them. Or That's the perspective that the author draws up for us. And, and he calls out to them, and Adam responds, We are hiding because we're ashamed. And God says, Why? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? And what does Adam do? His first instinct, if you're being honest, this is going to sound familiar. His first instinct is to shift blame. He seeks to justify himself. Yes, I ate from the tree, but it's the woman who you gave me who gave it to me. And I ate it. God turns to Eve. Why did you give him the fruit to eat? Didn't, wasn't, wasn't the command clear? Didn't you know that I'd given you everything you needed? You didn't need to go to this tree for any kind of resource that wasn't already yours? And she says, well, you know, the serpent deceived me. It was the serpent's fault. Ultimately, they try to justify themselves, to convince themselves that they're right, to minimize their weaknesses by shifting those weaknesses to other people. What they're doing are classic signs of someone who feels like they're in charge, excuse me, in charge of their life, but feeling like they can't really measure up, and they've got to fight for that security. Ultimately, they're doing the same thing that I use in my marriage. Lindsay's not in here, so I can be honest about my secrets, my strategies. Uh, there are many, many things that Lindsay is better than me at, but... If my experience, my long, long experience in grad school has taught me anything, it's that uh, it has taught me how to do anything. It's to, it's to argue. I can argue really, really well. And oftentimes, when we experience conflict, and friendly disputes in our marriage, my method of manipulation is to try to convince her that she's wrong, even if. Even if I have this sense buried in me that, that I'm the one who's wrong, I feel like if I can out-argue her, I can convince her and then also maybe convince myself too that ultimately I am in the right and, and just make it a matter of argument. I think that's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing here. They're trying to convince not just God but themselves that they're not who they, they think they may be. Speaking of marriage, the idea of insecurity leading to the abuse of others that's introduced here. I think it's also the best way to understand another really difficult reference in this passage. So God's talking to them, explaining the results of sin, how they're going to shake out in practice. And what he tells Eve is this, this almost cryptic reference that your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. What is that about? His desire, your desire is going to be for your husband. He, he's going to rule over you. It's a tough reference because the word that is used here for desire isn't a common one. It doesn't show up very often. But I think the key to understanding what's meant here and why it fits so well with this understanding of the results of sin that I'm trying to suggest, the key to understanding this word is that it gets used again in the next chapter. In verse 7 of chapter 4, sin is described as crouching at the door waiting 
for Cain to take over him and to motivate him to kill his brother. And the same word is used. Sin's desire was for Cain. The implication is that it's, it's a desire for influence, for manipulation, for control, for supremacy in the relationship. In that light, what God's telling Eve is that she and her husband and all subsequent couples are going to fight for control and dominion in the relationship. What's gone, or what will no longer come naturally, is a relationship of service for each other, of submission to the interests of each other, of perfect harmony that existed before, of a life as bone of bone and flesh of flesh. In place of that, perfect complementarity. What you have now is a struggle for supremacy. Who knows how it will work itself out. We can't read too much into the details here, but, but it's certainly, at the very least, a desire for control in the relationship that's going to affect both parties. And it makes perfect sense given what sin is, as we've just described it. When you put yourself in God's place, when you tend to see all of the world as a threat to your ability to establish yourself when you're responsible for your sense of security. And that means everybody else, how you see others, is not for their own sake or for what you can give them, but from what you can get from them to bolster your position. That's, what, that's the way you start to see others. They're either an opportunity for you to get ahead or they're a threat to you that's got to be eliminated. It's like an insecure dog. Always the, the insecure dogs, the ones who think that they're in control, that are not submissive, like the one that I had for an unfortunate three years. Those are the dogs that, that are fighting everything that moves because they think they're in control, they feel their sense of inadequacy, and they think they've got to fight to establish themselves. They're never at rest. They're never at peace. I think that's what we see working itself out in these relationships here. Is this ringing true for you? It does for me. The picture that's painted here is that sin is an attempt to put yourself in God's place, and it is lonely at the top. Do you take offense easy? Have you seen that in yourself? It's so quick to react defensively to what people have said, quick to take things personally? Is your first instinct, if you think somebody's got a problem with you, to defend yourself rather than listen to see if they might be right? Is that, is that where you go immediately, sort of a knee-jerk? Do you find yourself shifting blame a lot? I think, it, uh, I think if, if you do, like I do, what you've got in your life are some signs that you're insecure and that you're insecure because you put yourself where only God belongs. You want to be responsible for your success. That's where it starts. I think I can get ahead better if I follow my way. That's what Eve thought. I can be more wise if I take action than if I obey God. You start by looking for success, but what you end up with is responsibility for the blame, your responsibility for your failure when, no one else, when you've got nobody else to fall back on. And blame shifting may help you keep up appearances for a while, but inside... You know that when that you fail, then and that can be a crushing weight. And what that looks like in your relationships is brokenness, brokenness, manipulation, all flowing from insecurity. That's one result of sin. Much more quickly now, a couple other results of sin in this passage. One is that that sin creates a separation from God. I think we get the picture that in the garden, somehow mysteriously, it was a place where Adam and Eve were able to communicate with God directly unbroken by any sense of, of barrier, that he would actually come into the garden somehow, and they would, they would talk with each other. Now, immediately, 
Adam and Eve are hiding themselves. Because even without an imposed limit or barrier from God, they sense their own inadequacy in light of His holiness and they hide. But it only gets worse from there. By the end of the story, we see God banishing them from this place of of perfect relationship with Him and and putting this flaming sword in the middle to make sure no one could cross it and and having these cherubim, these, these angels come and guard the entrance. I think that's a theme that only gets developed more from here throughout the Old Testament. The theme of God and His people in relationship but, but broken off. There were barriers in between communication with God. I think that's exactly why the tabernacle, for instance, was guarded by a curtain that was embroidered with cherubim, just like the ones who guarded the garden. It was a reminder that no longer do we have direct access to God. That's gone because of what happened here in Genesis 3. All the regulations of sacrifice, of clean and unclean foods, they're all reminders of a breakdown in that relationship that that humans, because of sin, couldn't come to God directly. There's separation from God. A third result in this passage is that sin ultimately brings death. Sin, as a replacement of God, is really behaving as if God's not there. And the punishment is one that fits the crime. It's a complete removal of His presence the source of all good and life and beauty. This is what leads directly to the final result, to death as it was promised by God before in chapter 2 and as it's promised by Him again after in His words to Adam. You are from dust and to dust you're going to return. This is ultimate alienation from God, physical, spiritual, the absence of all things that are good. And it's a horrible fate, and it's painful to watch under the best of circumstances. We've all experienced it, and we all will personally and deeply experience it one day. Genesis 3 is an explanation for that human problem that no one has been able to figure out yet in thousands of years of trying. Death comes to us all. So, We've seen something about the nature of sin, that it's to replace God and His authority with ourselves, and that the results of sin are to recognize we can't bear that weight. It shows itself up in our relationships, shows itself up in how we relate to God, and it shows itself in the fact that ultimately all of us are waiting on death. The implication of the next two chapters in Genesis, chapter 4 and chapter 5, is that the results of sin that are described here in chapter 3 don't die with Adam and Eve. Immediately in chapter 4, Adam's children, Cain and Abel, turn on each other. Primarily Cain turning on Abel out of jealousy, out of insecurity, out of worrying that his brother has something that he wants and, and needs to fight for his own by taking his life. By the end of the chapter, Lamech, another descendant, is bragging about the fact that he killed somebody who just struck him. Just got hit across the face and he, he kills him in retaliation and feels no remorse but brags about it. You can see this spiraling out of control. Then Genesis 5, it's one of those passages we tend to skip over because it's a list of names. It's what you call a genealogy of who gave birth to who, who gave birth to who. But the real emphasis of it, I think, is that death is settled in. Abel was not the only one to die, though he was the first. Because after every name in Genesis 5 is listed, we're told how many kids they had, how long they lived, and then the simple repetitive sentence, and he died, and he died, and he died died over and over all through that text. Death has set in as a cycle that can't be broken. So what are we going to do? What do we do? Well, this is Holy Week, and Christians all over the world are spending more concentrated time than even normal reflecting on the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
I think those are events that we can't really understand unless we understand the message of Genesis chapter 3. The story that we've just covered explains the problems that Jesus came to solve. But it also includes a promise of hope that starts the progression towards Jesus. In verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, God is addressing the serpent and he's cursing him to to live a life of squirming on the ground eating dust. And in the middle of that curse, he tells him that there will always be enmity, a war between his seed and the seed of the woman. And that one day, the seed of the woman will come and crush his head once and for all. Christians have seen in this passage from the beginning a promise that Jesus ultimately fulfills. That this curse establishes a grand battle between evil and good. And that though Jesus himself was bruised on the heel in his death, in his resurrection, he once and for all crushed the power of sin. It's, it's what the early church fathers called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. The Old Testament is bound together, I think, by, by tracing this seed from Adam to Abraham, traces it from Abraham to Judah, from Judah to David, and then from David to Jesus. And all throughout, the seed of the woman continues in spite of all challenges against it. And then Jesus comes with his life, death, and resurrection to crush the power of evil. Quickly, as we look forward to this next week, I want to point you to the ways in which Jesus' life, death, and resurrection solve the specific problems we've just spent the last 25 minutes talking about. The results of sin that set in in Genesis chapter 3 are specifically addressed and perfectly addressed through the work of Jesus. First, look at his life and death. We've just considered this in depth in our study of Mark, but... In Jesus' life, he modeled the solution to the relationship problems all of us struggle with because of our sin and insecurity. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, untouched by any selfishness or pride, and he gave himself away in service and ultimately in death. What he called his followers to was to take his yoke on them, to learn from him because he is meek, He is humble in heart, and in him, in following his model, you find rest for your souls. He told his followers that the one who'd be first was going to have to be last in this life. That the leaders must be servants of all, even as he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why, when Jesus summarizes what's going to set apart his followers from the rest of the world, what he says is that the way that you love each other is is what's going to mark you as my disciples. And that love is radically countercultural. We love each other as Jesus' followers in a way that sets aside selfishness, our interests, any desire to get ahead. We're not to be a defensive or abusive or selfish or exploitative. What we are to do is to set others' interests ahead of our own. And that, is, that goes against everything that's in our nature because of what happened with Adam and Eve. And that's what marks us as those among whom something supernatural has happened. Jesus' life models a solution to the problems with our relationships coming out of sin is death solves the problem of our separation from God that was our punishment for sin. We recently looked at this in our our study of Mark's gospel when it was winding to a close. The story of Jesus' death in, in chapters 14 and 15 of that gospel is one of absolute abandonment. Jesus was abandoned by his friends, his closest followers, and ultimately, when he was hanging on the cross, he was crying out not from pain, but from the sense, the deep awareness that he had been abandoned by his own father. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
in Jesus' death, He perfectly absorbs the punishment that we deserve for our sin. In our sin, we act like God's not there, like we don't want Him to be there. We replace Him with our own instincts. His punishment for our sin is one that fits the crime. It is to separate Himself from us and with Him all good things. The banishment from the garden was only a foretaste of the full and complete banishment from God's presence that we deserve. But Jesus, in his death, absorbed this punishment so perfectly that he made a covenant with us. Mark 14 describes, compares Jesus' abandonment by everyone else with his promise to make a covenant with us in his blood. And that covenant provides a tie that can never be broken by anything. That covenant through made possible through Jesus' own abandonment proves and, and secures the fact that we will never be abandoned. And that's why Mark tells us that when he died, chapter 15 tells us that the curtain guarding the temple, the same one embroidered with the cherubim who had guarded access to the, to the Garden of Eden, gets torn in two from top to bottom. There's no more barrier to God and to the life that's in him. And that's because of Jesus' death. Finally, his resurrection solved once and for all the problem of death. The ultimate separation from God that our sin deserves is a separation that is unending in death and absence from all good things. But Jesus' resurrection, what we're going to celebrate together this time next week, is a promise that the cycle of Genesis 5, that cycle of death that has been unbreakable in all of human experience, is shattered and we can live again. His resurrection is the most obvious sign we've got that the serpent's head has been crushed and the power of evil is broken forever. So what do we do? Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, a kingdom that was to replace the one that had been broken by the sin that Eve and Adam committed when they replaced God as king over their lives. Jesus came saying the kingdom's here and it's now. And the way that you get in on it is repentance and faith. Repentance is simply replacing God at the center of our lives as an authority over us, removing whatever substitute we've put there through our own instincts, through our own senses, and and reclaiming our rightful position as his loyal subjects. Faith is the decision to rest in the confidence that what Jesus has provided is fully capable of erasing all of sin's impact on us. Faith is to replace that rebellion with a sense of faith and or sense of rest and trust that knows Jesus can deliver on what he's promised. That's the call. That's the call of Jesus and the call for each of us. And it's an especially sweet call for us to consider together as we look forward to Good Friday and Easter next week. Would you would you pray with me?